0: It is wonderful to sing together, and have a meal together, and uh, worship together, and open God's Word together. And uh, we are going to continue our story in Acts chapter 16, and if you like titles, uh, then the title of my message today is A Lasting Legacy. A Lasting Legacy. Uh, So if you want to turn your Bibles to Acts 16, we're going to read from uh, 11 to verse 15, and I'm just going to occasionally wander over here just to uh change slides. So now, which button is it? That one. Oh, there we go. Right. We pick up the story from uh, the last week or last time that Malcolm preached on Paul's second missionary journey. Um, they left from Antioch, went through Asia and uh, Asia Minor, and in Asia, and as they wanted, Paul and, and, and Silas and uh, um, Timothy joined them, uh, as they wanted to enter into Asia and visit these different cities to preach the gospel, uh, the doors were closed. And as the doors were closed and other doors were open, they, they actually bypassed the whole region and finished up in Troas, and that's where uh, Malcolm finished the last passage, uh, the first part of Acts 16, where Paul has a vision at night in Troas of a, a man from Macedonia calling him and said, We need your help. And Macedonia, of course, is over here. That is Asia, and that is modern day Europe. So that is uh, Greece and what is now back to Macedonia or the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia or something like that, Phyrom. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts uh, 16, verse 11. So if you wanna read with me Acts 16, oh, thanks, from verse 11. So he says, from Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for samotrace And the next day we went on to Neapolis the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. This is uh, 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 after this, in the rest of the, the chapter, this whole chapter 16 is about events in Philippi, and uh, it's quite an eventful time in Philippi. We see here how Lydia gets converted uh, and is baptized. And then after that, we see that uh, Paul drives out the spirit from a prophesying slave girl. There's a, a civil disturbance. They get hauled before the magistrate. They get flogged. They get thrown in prison. A miraculous uh, event happens in the prison. Uh, the Philippian jailer is converted. They escape and they escape and move on to a next city. But we're just gonna focus on the first bit today, on this little story here of the conversion of Lydia and see what we can learn from it for ourselves. If we go on to the next slide, Uh, we zoom in on that previous picture. There's Troas. They sailed to Samothrace, which is a, an island, and from there to Neapolis. Neapolis is a port city, uh, but straight from Neapolis, they went to Philippi, and that's where Philippi is. Now, it's interesting, there's some other names that we recognize in Macedonia. There is uh, Thessalonica. Um, we, we have two letters in the Bible written to the Thessalonians. There is a uh, people in Berea. It's one of our scriptures, you know, the people of Berea were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. They even compared to each other. That's where Philippi is. Where was Lydia from? Sorry? Yeah, the lady from the purple cloth. The one that was baptized. The clue is on the map. (laughs) It's actually in the story as well. You can just read Acts uh, 16. Theatira, yeah, yeah, Theatera or Syatira. It's from there. That's where, that's where Lydia was from. And she was way up there in Philippi. We don't know why, but she was a trader. So probably she was there selling her purple cloth. Philippi was, it says in Act 16, Philippi was the leading city of the district of Macedonia. Uh, it was a leading city because it had a, quite a rich history. There was a Roman road. Going all the way from Philippi through the uh, through the inland area there, um, there was uh, several temples, and the name Philippi came, comes from Philip of Macedonia, who, who inherited that part of Alexander the Great's empire. Now, if you know a bit of history, Alexander the Great conquered the whole of Europe almost, and Asia. All of this into Babylon. Uh, and even down into uh, Israel. And I mean, he, was, uh, he had a huge empire. And when he died, his empire was carved into 12 pieces. And Philip of Macedonia, he ruled this area. And that's where the name Philippi came from. He, he saved uh, Philip, uh, Philippi from, well, it had a different name, the town. And then they were under attack, and Philip came and he saved them. And after he saved him, they named the town after him. And that's how it became Philippi. It was a, it says it was a Roman colony, and a leading city. It was actually the site of one of the biggest battles ever in the Roman Empire. When uh, Caesar was uh, stabbed by, who was it to? Brutus and Cassius, I believe. Yes, when he was betrayed. it was the biggest battle ever in the, in the Roman Empire happened at Philippi because they escaped to Philippi and that's when Mark Antony and, uh, who's the other one? Mark Antony and, and, and uh, one, of his, uh, one of the other famous Roman guys pursued them and there was a battle of about 110,000 with Mark Antony against 90,000 with Brutus and Cassius and 40,000 people died in that battle in Philippi. And then he became... After they won that battle, Mark Anthony established Philippi as the center of that of that colony. So I wondered like in why did, you know the call, the vision was come to Macedonia. That was the vision that Paul had. Well, where in Macedonia? It wasn't clear, it just said come to Macedonia. So they landed at Neapolis, and I was wondering why did they they just pass through? Probably because Philippi was, they probably thought, okay, let's go to the most important city. If we have to go to Macedonia, where do we go? To the most important city. Because maybe there something big is going to happen. It's a big city, big expectations. Who knows what God has prepared for us? And they go in search of this man of Macedonia. But it's actually amazing how God works. Because who do they find here in in, in Philippi a lady who came all the way from Thyatira. And isn't it amazing how God works? Because if they ignored all these closed doors, and when the Spirit said, don't go there, they said, what is this God? I mean, we're here to evangelize this place, and, and they went there anyway. Then they may have gone to Thyatira, and the lady wouldn't have been there. It is amazing how God works in people's lives to make sure that they're at the right time, at the right place. I just think about how I became a Christian. I worked for six months on a project with a a Christian in Johannesburg. And it was during those six months that I worked with him on that project that he met me, started studying the Bible with me, and I became a Christian. I never met him before that in my life, and I never met him after that again in my life. And it is like that, that six-month window where we work together on the same project in Johannesburg. I, I, I wasn't even from Johannesburg. I was living in a different city in Pretoria. But God worked it out, opened and closed the right door so we could be at the right place at the same time, at the same place. And we see God working in the same way here in Lydia's life to help her to become a Christian. Now, if you remember back through the book of Acts so far, through all Paul's journeys, whenever he went to a city, to a new city, where was the first place he would go to? The synagogue, yes. So here they go to Philippi. Let's go to this big city, Philippi. And what do they find? No synagogue. (laughs) In fact, they had to go down to the river where they hoped to find a place of prayer. They expected to find a place of prayer at the river. Why was that? Well, at this time, you needed at least 10 men to establish a synagogue. So there was not even 10 God-fearing Jews, believing Jews, who worshiped God in that big city. Not even 10 men, because otherwise they could have established a synagogue. That's amazing. If we just think about us in Watford here today. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Ben, how old are you? Do we count you as a man? (laughs) Well, he's 16. So we would be meeting down by the river (laughs) instead of as the Watford church, as just a group. Oh, let's just go and pray together. You know, what can we, you know, our small little group here. And of course, in those days, the women didn't even count. In the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion, Uh, Yet from this very small beginning, the first convert in Europe kind of follows the pattern of Jesus. Because who was the first person to see Jesus risen from the dead? Mary, a woman. And now they go to Europe and the first convert to Christianity is a woman. Because there were not even ten men there gathering together at the river to pray. Uh, Next slide, please. It's a small beginning. But you know what? God has a big vision. And often big visions start with small beginnings. This quote here from Zechariah 4 verse 10 is, When the Jews were in exile in Babylon and they returned back to Jerusalem, they found Jerusalem as a destroyed city, broken down to the ground. When the invaders, first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, they broke down the city walls. They half destroyed the city and then they completely destroyed the temple. The temple did not exist anymore. And Zechariah and Nehemiah decided and was inspired by God to rebuild the temple, starting from nothing. And guess what? What did the people do? Like with Noah, When he started building his ark and he chopped down, that first tree, People laughed at him. It's like, what are you doing? And then God came to a vision, in a vision to Zechariah. And it says here, um, I'll just read in, uh, uh, in the message translation. It says, the word of God came to me. Zerubbabel started rebuilding this temple and he will complete it. Does anyone dare despise this day of small beginnings? They will change their tune when they see the rubber bell setting the last stone in place. In the New Living Translation, it, it says, Do not despise small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Even God, when he has great visions, and great visions for us, and dreams big dreams, he starts small. And he said, don't laugh at this guy just putting down the first stone. Because it's a small beginning. But it's a small beginning to something big. But it's a small beginning to something big. You know, this is true even for us as a small church here in Watford. It's a small beginning. Who knows what God plans for the church here in Watford? It is even true for our personal lives. You know, maybe you have a vision of somewhere you want to be, something you want to achieve. You you hope on, on uh, progressing your career, or you hope on on making progress in your studies, or of qualifying yourself with something. And you look at that as like, oh, this is so big. There's so much to do. Where do you start? And it says, God says, don't despise small beginnings, because even big things start small. And the work rejoices. God, what is God rejoicing? He doesn't just rejoice in the big things. He rejoices to see the work begin. And even in our own lives, whether it's something you struggle with in your character, or some sin you're trying to overcome, sometimes it can seem like this mountain. But how do you climb a mountain? Just one step at a time. You just take the first step. And you take one more step. And that is what God rejoices in. God rejoices in those small beginnings, in just that first step that we take. And God rejoiced and clearly had a plan for the church in Philippi. And even in that small beginning with no synagogue, a woman, which was culturally completely uh, uh, not what the Jewish culture was like, he said, I will start with that, with that small, with that small beginning. Will there be challenges? For sure. Sure. Will there be setbacks? Of course. Life is tough. It's almost guaranteed that uh, things won't go smoothly. And you know, Lydia was baptized there, and they could have said, Yes, you know what a great start, and let's keep going, and it's gonna be wonderful. And guess what? A few days later, before the magistrate, they were flogged, they were beaten, they were thrown into prison, and then they were chased out of the city. You could think like, oh. What a failure. I mean, where is the big church that, you know, that, where is the, the big calling of this man of Macedonia that they went on this mission and it didn't happen? Many years later, Paul writes to the church in Philippi from another jail in Rome, and he, he writes in Philippians 1 verse 6, he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul was convinced that whatever God began in that small church there in Philippi, he will carry on until completion. And that's really God's work in our lives as well. We are all a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. I sometimes look at myself like, ah, oh, can't I just be finished and done and, you know, they put like in a display cupboard and say, Oh, look at that. Isn't that you know it's it's all finished? Sometimes it gets discouraging, or, if, or it becomes like in, you feel like oh I'm losing hope, or I'll never change, or and maybe the church in Philippi thought that as well, and thought, like, in, you know, where are we going with this? Paul righteous says, Don't worry, God had a plan. He's working, and he will complete his work, and he will complete his work in our lives as well. Whatever it is that you're working on your own character or your own life, God will complete what he started. Where does it start? Where? What is that first brick that God lays in our lives? Mm -hmm. Uh, It really starts with a message of hope. That is the message that Lydia accepted. It says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And what was that message? Well, it was the message that Paul was called to preach in back in Act 16. When uh, he had the vision and the man from Macedonia was begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. It was someone crying out for help, someone who needed hope in his life. Or maybe it was someone who needed hope in her life concluding that God had called us to preach the good news to them, or the gospel, the good news of the gospel, synonymous. That is the message of hope. After so many closed doors and the Spirit saying, don't go here, don't go there, he opened the door for the message of hope. And it all starts with the message of hope. That's how I became a Christian, just with a small message of hope. That is what we build our Christian lives on. It is built on a message of hope. And that is an incredibly powerful message. You know, I was not going to bring rugby into my sermon, you know, because this is church and we don't talk about, you know, this is a spiritual message, you know, we talk about the Bible and things like that. But then Barry started it (laughs) and he brought politics into it, first of all, and then he mentioned the rugby. So... That kind of opened the door for me. So, next slide please. <laughs> and it just happened to be convenient that I, I had a slide in my back pocket, so I, right. If, if anybody mentions it, I will talk about the rugby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit bright in here, but that's Rasi Erasmus, he's the Springbok coach, and that's uh, Sia Kunisi, uh, who's the, the Springbok captain who won the Rugby World Cup yesterday. And uh, this picture is from, uh, and by the way, that that is the Golden World Cup right there. <laughs> this is at the press conference afterwards. It was, I think, one of the most humble, inspiring press conferences I've seen in a long time. And you see the, the interaction between the two of them as captain and coach. And um, at one point, a question was put to both of them. And you kind of think as the coaches, you know, he's, he's the boss. And the captain kind of reports to him. And, and Rossi is the coach. He looked at the captain and he said, Is it okay if I answer this? And I was like, wow, that, that says something about a, a very special relationship between the two of them. Now, just a bit of background Sia Kulisi, he grew up in a, in a very poor township in South Africa. Uh, there was, he didn't have a television at home. When they asked him where were you at the last time South Africa won the World Cup in 2007, he said, oh, he, he had to go and watch the game at the tavern in town because they didn't have a television at home. Now in this country, you would think like it's almost unimaginable for anybody not to have a television at home. You go to the most poor council estates and you'll see satellite dishes, satellite dishes all over and everybody has a TV. It's like... Nobody's really poor enough not to even have a television in this country, but that's what he came from. And so they asked him, so when you watch that, uh, so he was born in 91, so I think he was 16 years old at that stage. And uh, uh, he played rugby at school, but because he was so poor, he played barefoot. And, and in fact, a lot of kids in South Africa play barefoot rugby, at least at primary school, uh, sometimes even into high school. He played barefoot rugby. And so they asked him, so when you watch that in 2007, so when, watch South Africa win the World Cup, did you also dream of becoming a springbok and dream of winning the World Cup one day? And he said, no, the only thing I dreamed of is having a meal tomorrow. That, that was his only hope, is just to have something to eat tomorrow. As a, uh, shortly after that, um, There was a lot of development work in South Africa in in, in rugby, Uh, and uh, he was spotted by Rasi Erasmus. And, uh, well, someone else actually spotted him uh, when he was 16, playing at school, and they arranged for him to have a scholarship at one of the top rugby schools in South Africa. Uh, Someone bought him a pair of shoes. and, and, and he went to that rugby school, and then uh, Rasi Erasmus spotted him as an 18-year-old, and uh, basically gave him a contract. Straight out of school, he got a professional contract as a rugby player, uh, which completely turned his life around and, and changed his life. But that is what he came from—from from, from a position of of no hope. And in this interview, um, one of the questions they they asked him was and this is the question where he looked at him and said, shall I answer this? He said, oh, how, how do you deal with the pressure you know, of a whole nation expecting you to win this World Cup? And he said, they talked about it uh, beforehand, and, and they said, you know what? Let's just have some perspective on this and some context because in South Africa, pressure is not rugby. Pressure is not having a job. Pressure is not knowing where your next meal's coming from. Pressure is having a close relative or friend being murdered. In South Africa, I'm quoting from his uh, his, uh, interview, in South Africa, there are a lot of problems, which is, that's real pressure. And rugby should not be something that creates pressure on you. It should be something that creates hope and not be a burden to you. We have a privilege of giving people hope. A privilege of giving people hope. And I said hope is not just nice words or a quick tweet on Twitter or something you post on Instagram. It is how you play on the field. And then, regardless of political, racial, or other differences, when people in South Africa watch, hope gives them something they can all agree on. You know, that is a, a, an incredible message of hope. Yes, it's rugby, and but I appreciate that he kind of put it in context, that, you know, it's only a game. But sport has that unique quality of unifying people because there is only one national team. You know, there may be three or four, I don't know how many political parties in the UK. There's 22 in the Netherlands. Um, 17 of them are in Parliament. It's a different kind of democracy. Um, but there's only one national team. Not many like the political parties. There's many religions in this country. There's so many things that people can choose from have different opinions about. There's only one national team, and that's why it's so unifying, and that's why it gives people hope, because when you don't have hope in your daily life, you look at something to, to feel like we can achieve something. And that's why the nation hopes, put so much hope in the rugby team, because It makes you feel like as a nation, you can achieve something and and be someone. Uh, And yet that is only rugby. The incredible message of the gospel is a message of hope then that unites everybody. That goes beyond politics. It goes beyond whatever opinions people have about anything in life. And it has that ability to unify people. It is a message that goes Across all boundaries, race, language, politics, it all doesn't matter with a message of hope of the gospel. That's the message that Lydia heard and that helped her to become a Christian. That's the message that later in the chapter, the Philippian jailer heard. When he thought, like, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to die because I let this prisoner escape. And Paul said, it's okay, there's hope for you. You don't need to die. It's a message of hope. And that is where it all starts. That is why we're here today, because we live with that hope. We live in that hope. And it's not just sweet words. It's not just a, a quick scripture shared on a, on a text message or a WhatsApp group. It is how we live our lives. Because hope is only real if we live according to that hope. And that's the difference between being religious. Religious people send nice words to each other. But people who really live that hope that they believe in, live it every day. That is our calling as Christians, to be a living hope. A living hope to this world. And then lastly, next slide. When Paul left, you may have thought that he left behind just a, a woman, and maybe they converted a few other people. They're not even mentioned. What did they leave behind? They actually left behind a lasting legacy. Many years later, Paul writes back to the church of Philippi from jail, as seems to be his habit, that he ends up in jail a lot. What is he writing? He says, To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Now we know from Paul's other letters to Titus and and Timothy, that an overseer must be a married man with children, kind of, doesn't have to be, but that's kind of a pattern. So the overseers, clearly, men were converted. And to have overseers means it's a mature church with elders and a church with deacons, where there's enough work in the church to start appointing people to roles and say, you know what, the work is getting too much for us, we need deacons and we need shepherds to oversee the flock. It became, clearly became a big church. And in fact, from history we know that one of the biggest churches in the regions was built in 400 AD. Uh, it had three, it's a bit like St. Albans Cathedral, yeah? it had the main nave and then two side naves. Now, that kind of size of church was built there. So, so they, they left a legacy of a large church from small beginnings. And it was not just a church that they left. They built incredible relationships. The heart that Paul had, he, he writes things like, he says, your par- because of, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day. He didn't just convert people to religion. He, could, he made disciples of them because they became partners in the gospel from the very first day. That means that when Lydia got converted. what do we read? We said, she and her household got baptized. And it spread very quickly because they were busy sharing their faith, sharing the gospel. When Paul left, it didn't matter because they just kept on doing that, being partners in the gospel. You began a good work and you will carry it on to completion. And then later on in verse 7, Paul says, I have you in my heart. I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. How can you build such deep relationships so quickly? Only in Christ is that possible. he says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. He's not saying that you may get love. He said, you are so loving, you have so much love. Just keep on growing and growing, more and more and more love. I pray that your love will abound more and more. And then in verse uh in chapter four, at the, right at the end of his letter to the Philippians, he says, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. That's a lasting legacy. A legacy that lasted for, for many, many, many years and decades and then hundreds of years. That's the impact that the gospel has. It started with just a vision, with small beginnings, and then it grew and it grew and it grew. And I pray that for us as well, that we will, that we will have that vision of hope in our hearts, that, uh, As we look around us, we think like, oh, we're not even 10 men here to start a synagogue. That one day, you know, this will be, people will look back and say, oh yeah, wow, you know that little group that started there in Watford? Now they're all over Hertfordshire. Because of a message of hope that we have in our hearts and that we live every day and that we bring to the people of Hertfordshire. And it's something to dream about. Who knows what God's plans are, but I believe we are here as part of God's plan. And that God will complete the work that he has started with each one of us here in Watford and will leave a lasting legacy for generations to come. Let's pray. Dear God, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for that you are a visionary God, that you have plans and that you close doors and open doors and that you work out things in amazing ways to bring your plans to fruition, God. Father, we pray that you will help us to hold on to the message of hope. Help us to uh, see the hope of the gospel, Father. That we can I uh, pray, God, that you will help us to be encouraged by it and hold fast to it, Father. Please help us to be living messages of hope, God, that we can also bring hope to this community uh, that we live in, Father all over Hertfordshire, God, Father, and that that our hope can touch the lives of people around us, Father. Father, uh, we thank you for the power of your word, and uh, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.